What's up, everyone? This is your video and podcast director, Marina McTee. The podcast we have for you today is from staff reporter Brendan Sudbury, who talks with student and former co-president of the Feminist Club, Katie Valdez, about women's voting rights. In light of the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, they discuss how the struggle for voting rights has continued for many groups in this episode of Westminster Stories. Hello, everyone. My name is Brendan Sudbury. I am a reporter for the Forum, and this is Westminster Stories, where we have the chance to sit down with members of the Westminster community and hear about their stories, interests, and discuss issues that matter to them. Due to the continuing COVID-19 public health emergency, this installment of Westminster Stories has been recorded remotely to ensure proper social distancing. Today, I am joined by Katie Valdez to discuss the history of the American suffrage movement and a new mural in downtown Salt Lake City that has been causing some controversy. Katie is a senior justice studies major and former co-president of the Westminster College Feminist Club. How are you doing today, Katie? I'm doing well. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks for having me today. Of course. I'm super excited you could be here today. Um, So to start off, I'd like to begin by going over a brief timeline and history of the suffrage movement and the effort to ratify the 19th Amendment to the Constitution. How does that sound? Yeah, that sounds great. Awesome. Um, So according to information compiled by the University of Rochester starting in 1869, Wyoming became the first U.S. territory to grant suffrage to women, with the Utah Territory closely following in 1870. In fact, though Wyoming was the first territory to grant women the right to vote, Utah's election actually came before Wyoming's, meaning Utah women were the first in the United States to legally cast votes in an election. After years of pushback by the federal government, in 1882, the House of Representatives and Senate appointed select committees on women's suffrage, which ultimately didn't do much at the time, but was at least a move towards progress, as it somewhat legitimized women's suffrage on a federal level. By 1890, Wyoming had officially joined the Union, becoming the first state with voting rights for women. Additionally, by this time, women had won full suffrage in Utah, Idaho, and Colorado. Then, after more than two decades, the enfranchisement of women began to increase with Arizona, Kansas, and Oregon passing suffrage referendums in 1912, Montana and Nevada extending the vote to women in 1914, and women in North Dakota, Ohio, Indiana, Rhode Island, Nebraska, Michigan, New York, and Arkansas gaining suffrage in 1917. In 1919, when only 17 of the 48 states in the Union had granted women the right to vote, the United States Congress adopted the 19th Amendment to the Constitution through a joint resolution and sent it to the states for ratification. Finally, on August 18, 1920, Tennessee became the 36th and final state to ratify the 19th Amendment, finally enfranchising the women of the United States. While the passage of this amendment was monumental in what it accomplished in changing the electorate forever, the fact of the matter is that this victory was really only a victory for white women. For the vast majority of women of color, particularly black women, the fight for suffrage continued on for nearly five decades. 
According to the Center for American Progress, Chinese Americans were not able to vote until the repeal of the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1943. Most other Asian Americans were not able to vote until 1952, and Native Americans were not able to vote in all states until 1948. Black folks, particularly those in the Jim Crow South, continued to be barred from voting through the use of poll taxes, literacy tests, white-only primaries, and other barriers and acts of intimidation and violence. While the Voting Rights Act of 1965 brought the promise of the 15th and 19th Amendments closer to reality for Americans whose votes had been impacted by these discriminatory practices, it wasn't until the expansion of the Voting Rights Act in 1975 that many Latinx and immigrant voters could comfortably exercise their right to vote. So with all of this history in mind, do you have anything that you would like to add or think is important to note about the suffrage movement? Yeah, I think that um, this long history of really having to fight tooth and nail for um, enfranchisement uh, exemplifies that this is um, a really difficult and ongoing fight that it actually continues to happen um, now. Um, For example, we have extreme rates of voter suppression in this nation. And I mean, some examples of that would be incarcerated folks not being able to vote, um, people who've been convicted of a felony not being able to vote. Uh, I mean, even there, there's only two states that don't have some variation of laws that block folks who have been incarcerated, are incarcerated, or have been convicted of a felony from voting. we don't allow undocumented folks to vote where these are people who are affected by our laws who are affected by the policies that come down the way um these are folks who do the labor that middle class americans refuse to do (laughs) um and we don't allow people in the territories to vote um territories being a nicer name for colony these are folks who are also very much affected by American policy and yet they're not enfranchised in any way, shape or form. And I would argue that that is very much intentional. And with all of these different groups in mind, of course, half of them are women. So how many of our women in this nation and in this nation's colonies, um, do we actually care to enfranchise or want to be enfranchised? Um, I think that that says a lot about where we're at right now. Right, and I think that is a super important point to bring up of those communities that even still today that we're forgetting about. Um, And sort of on that same note, there isn't much of a discussion happening still today about expanding um, enfranchisement to other communities and different groups. Do you think that this lack of conversation that we're still, the lack of conversation that we're not having today is intentional to continue to suppress the right of those individuals that are still disenfranchised from receiving um, that right to vote that they deserve? Oh yeah, totally intentional. Um, And I would say that there's, there's, (laughs) it's totally intentional. There's a lot of ways in which that conversation gets um, controlled. And one of those ways being the way that our history is taught. Um, I mean, you think back to 
high school history classes or U.S. government classes where you learn, well, yes, this year is when women could vote. This year is when African-Americans could vote. Um, And we're kind of fed this whole narrative that we're all enfranchised now and the fight is over. But, I mean, there has actually been some movements recently. For example, in Puerto Rico, there's been um, push to get the vote. Um, and that just hasn't been publicized here. We don't, we don't really see that fight. We don't see the movements that go on. Um, because I think that that's also an intentional exclusion of that story (laughs) um, by U.S. media. Yeah. Um, but it seems like it's definitely this larger um, cyclical and systemic problem that we really need to start addressing as a nation. Um, so great points, and thank you for bringing all of those up. Um, but now I kind of want to move more towards some um, local news that's been happening here in Salt Lake City. Um, so recently to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the passage of the 19th Amendment, um, Zion's Bank partnered with the artist Jan Hayworth to commission a mural in downtown Salt Lake City. Um, and this mural depicts over 250 women who have been influential leaders in some capacity throughout Utah's history. Um, and some have criticized the mural for its lack of political diversity. For example, former Representative Mia Love, in a statement on Twitter, um, questioned why more Republican women haven't been included in the mural. And then others have also wondered why there aren't more women of color included in that mural for their work that they've done in the state. Um, so I'm just sort of wondering, what are your thoughts about the ability of the mural to adequately represent a diverse swath of Utahns? Um, and also, if there's any individuals that you would have wished to see represented on the mural? Um, yeah, that's, I, I don't mean to sound callous, Brendan, but I don't give a damn about the mural. Like, I'm sorry if that sounds really negative, but I, in a state where we have really terrible track record on women's equality and enfranchisement, like, I don't see the mural as important at all. Like, and the mural being there, in my opinion, is more of a slap of the, in the face than anything else. Um. And I really appreciate you actually bringing that up, um, because in a lot of the sort of news coverage I've been seeing about it, I've had that same sort of thought of, is this actually the most pressing issue, especially seeing as um, at the end of August, Wallet Hub, they released their annual um, Best and Worst States for Women's Equality, which ranks states on workplace environment, education, health, and political empowerment. And for a third year in a row, Utah was ranked at number 50, having the worst level of equality for women of any state in the country. And in fact, according to their survey, there was a nearly a 50-point gap between the top state of Hawaii um, at 75.3, and then Utah, who scored at uh, 25.74. So there's definitely a large disparity between um, the ways in which women are treated, seen, and respected in our state compared to other areas of the country. Um, so I'm sort of wondering, do you see any potential factors and possibilities of why it is that Utah just consistently continues to be ranked so low in this survey? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think that where we're at now um, is important to contextualize in 
a long and ongoing history of settler colonialism. Um, that's where all these gender roles came from in the first place. They are colonial um, impositions. Like this valley didn't always have this issue. Um, the people of this valley didn't initially have this struggle with women's issues. Um, and I think we have to also include that a tool of colonialism has always been and continues to be religion. Um, and we have a very special um, relationship and presence of religion in this state. The LDS church is very involved in the government here and makes a lot of the rules around here. Um, so when you see like Utah's track record with um, women's issues, that is very much tied up in um, the history of the Mormon church, how they have always um, positioned women, um, only valuing them as mothers and as wives to men. Um, and so looking at it through that framework, I think it, it puts things together. Um, it helps you understand why Utah has always struggled with these kinds of issues and always will as long as settler colonialism continues. Right, definitely. And I think that is a very important point that often goes unmentioned in a lot of these conversations. Um, and I think it probably has to do with how large of a role that um, that organization plays in decision making. So I think that's definitely an important thing to start bringing into these conversations. So thank you for bringing that up. Um, so the survey by Wallet Hub that um, showed Utah ranked 50th in equality for women, um, they really just look at it in the black and white narrative of men versus women, but not looking at any of the nuances or intersections of um, the women that actually fall into that group. So for example, um, throughout history, we've seen that women of color in our country, they've had a much harder time of facing these systematic forms of oppression and these systems that are really keeping them pushed farther back than their uh, white counterparts. Um, so I'm just wondering if you think that plays a role in Utah as well and sort of what role that might play. Yeah, um, I think that definitely plays a role. I think um, when we look at women's issues, we can't just flatten them. We can't just say women um, and average it out because there's important distinctions there. Um, if you divide the category of women by race, uh, white women are white women are significantly more enfranchised than women of color, and specifically black women and indigenous women. Um, I mean, for example, Utah has, I think it was the eighth highest rate for missing and murdered indigenous women. And that's something that just simply isn't on the radar a lot. It's not really, it's not talked about in our legislature. Um, it's not talked about um, just in the general conversation of women's equality here. Um, it's taken a lot of work on the part of indigenous 
activists um, to get that on people's radar here. Um, so, yeah, I think that like when we're having these conversations, it's important not to just generalize and take the average because that erases a lot of really, really important issues for black women, indigenous women, um, undocumented women, like other women of color who have immigrated here um, or grew up here. It just, it's not, it's not okay to ignore those important um, disparities. With those disparities that we're seeing between um, women of color and their white counterparts, um, how do you think that impacts the continued effort to ensure a free and fair exercise of voting rights all across this country? Um, Can you think of any specific examples that maybe we've seen in previous elections where um, folks of color and particularly maybe women of color have been disproportionately unable to... um, exercise that right to vote for whatever various reasons. We see that all the time um, in in this country. I think that we're going to continue to see it. Honestly, like, as long as we continue to allow this social order to exist, oppression is going to exist. Um, and, you know, a women's oppression along with that. Um, and honestly, it's so deeply embedded into the social order that we have into this system of um, capitalist male dominated white supremacist system. Um, So I mean, like, I don't mean to make it sound bleak, but like no amount of voting is going to change that fact. Um, It might improve certain things like for women, within the borders of our nation, within Utah. Um, But like, as women, we, I think it's important that we ask ourselves, what's our end game? What do we actually want out of this? Do we want to share in the spoils of foreign wars and other forms of imperialism? Or do we actually want women's liberation? Do we want freedom? Yeah, definitely. And I think that really just... I think we keep coming back to these larger issues than we as a dominant society, I think, actually choose to acknowledge and accept as real issues. So I I really appreciate you continuing to bring those up and ensuring that those are involved in this conversation. Um, So do you have any sort of final thoughts or comments that you would like to add? Um, I mean... Yeah, I don't know. I I think I've got all of it on the table. I just want to say thank you so much for having me um, and having this conversation with me. I really appreciate it. (laughs) Yeah, of course. I really appreciate you taking the time out to be involved in this um, podcast and really trying to bring these issues to the forefront of the conversations that we're having um, surrounding the issues of equality, equity, um, and just free and fair participation in the democratic process. So thank you for that. That does it for this installment of Westminster Stories. Thank you for tuning in. 
If you would like to check out more content from the forum, make sure to follow us online on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WC Forum Media. And check out our website, wcforummedia.com. For the forum's Westminster stories, I'm Brendan Sudbury. Thank you.